Welcome back to the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. I apologize for my awful voice during this introduction, but on today's episode, I am joined by Zach Gabor to discuss the complexities of pain, movement mechanics, and how to navigate these complexities as a clinician, coach, or athlete. Zach is a passionate physical therapist and founder of the Level Up Initiative, now known as Kalu, a mentorship program designed to help students and clinicians navigate the uncertainty that comes along with coaching and communicating with patients in order to give the best care possible. Zach and I dove deep into the factors that influence pain, the proper ways to address it, and the art of coaching movement mechanics in an empowering and effective way. This is one of my favorite conversations yet, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zach. Zach, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm absolutely pumped to have you on the show. Yes, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. So Zach, before we dive into our topic today, which is one that I'm super excited to get into, um, would you mind just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your journey? Yes. So trying to keep it to the brief spark notes these days, but basically um, I'm a part-time practicing physical therapist out in Boston. That's been more recent shifting down to two days a week um, where we work with a really, it's, it's really my dream population from a sense of everything from general ortho, but active population to more kind of like barbell athletes, power lifters, endurance athletes, kind of everything in between, including persistent pain. So it, it's a good kind of variety, which I personally really enjoy. Um, and then beyond that, I run an educational company and community with clinical athlete and level up that's called Kalu or the Kalu community. Um, that's been really fun. That grew from level up a company that I started a few years ago. Um, but it's really just, um, education and mentorship that really focuses on excellence across critical thinking skills, communication skills, exercise prescription, and helping healthcare providers kind of embed more of the humanities and truly patient-centered care. It's kind of a buzzword that gets thrown around, but that's really at the core of what we do um, so that we can try and, you know, collectively make an impact on the profession. So I would say that's the quick spark notes. Yeah. Awesome. You definitely do a lot, Zach. You're involved in a lot. And what I've seen from, you know, your work with Level Up and with Kalu, which I've joined in on pretty recently, um, and I'm loving all the journal clubs and everything you do, but you're really filling those holes that exist within what we get in school in PT. Um, You know, people who know me know at this point, I'm a few months out from graduation and I'm super passionate, not only about the field, but about incorporating all these interpersonal things that you are so passionate about. And I think you do a wonderful job at, at teaching those of us who are newer clinicians about um, how to incorporate these things, but it's, it's so crucial. And like school is, great. You know, we learn a ton of information. It's useful. But once we get into clinical practice, like I've seen on clinicals myself, not everything like appears the way that we would expect based on what we learn in school and it's overwhelming. So one of the biggest topics for me that I know is kind of tricky that you're really well-versed in is pain. And the word pain is probably like the most general thing in the world, right? Um, But what I'm looking for today is for us to just dive into musculoskeletal pain, kind of unpack what's involved with it, um, and ultimately give the clinicians, coaches, active people that are listening some takeaways about how to better understand 
what pain is, um, especially if they're experiencing it. So Zach, let's dive into a kind of quick definition of like, what is musculoskeletal pain and what kinds of problems does it cause? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I've been in the field now for like seven years and change and I still, you know, you can't, it's, it's one of those elusive things. You can't quite put your finger on it. And the second that you think you do have pain all figured out, you kind of get that swift, uh, hook, you know, to the face. You're just like, yep, nope. Uh, everything that I thought might not be as right as I thought I did. So, I mean, that's a good question. And I think, you know, um, first giving it that label of like musculoskeletal pain, as opposed to like other pain, you know, that's already an interesting delineation right there, because I, I think, when we look at some of the updated, um, like international association of pain definitions, it's, it's kind of agreed upon around this narrative of like a, you know, an actual or potential damage, you know, that may be associated with emotional, social, um, and other multifactorial events. Um, so the, the, the tricky thing with musculoskeletal pain is that it, it's something that probably manifests as, a, a a thing we feel at a part of our body. Uh, but the tricky thing is how relevant or how related is that to something that's really going on underneath the hood, so to speak, that's Trump, that's a troublesome or needs fixing or, you know, it, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let this conversation go on because it needs some more context, but yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough one to give a great definition for. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, you handled that well. I mean, it's like there really is no specific definition. But what you brought out there is um, the fact that emotional and social factors can be a part of pain and a part of somebody's pain experience. And many of us understand pain from a mechanical point of view, you know, as physical therapists, as coaches, all of my background has taught the body as a machine. Can you speak about this model and why it is likely not sufficient to explaining pain? For sure. Yeah. And I think we've all been there. It's like, that's just the culture. That's just how we're all uncultured. That's like the model of healthcare and an exercise that we all kind of grow up on. And it frankly makes a lot of sense. You know, um, I think that's part of it. And not only does it make a lot of sense, but it also can work really well um, when you look at it in some ways. So I think that's part of what's made it stick around for so long and become so entrenched. The problem is that when you do start to really, uh, look at it a little bit more critically, you see that, um, there's definitely some shortcomings from a sense of some of the claims that it might be making a might not be standing up to kind of the scrutiny of a more critical look, or there might be different ways to explain why, you know, people might be experiencing pain or why they might get better despite a kind of biomechanical intervention that you gave. Um, and the other side of that problem is what are some of the consequences of the narratives? And I know we'll get into this later, but that's part of it, right? Is it, it's one thing to be necessarily like unsubstantiated, but the other thing is what are some of the downstream problems that these, these well-intended narratives might be having? Um, and so I, I just rambled on for a while. Was the original question, why might it be insufficient? Yeah, that was part of it. Okay, so that's the background context. So I think when we look at why it might be insufficient, um, part of the problem is, you know, we've, we've really started to learn a lot more about how multifactorial pain is and just how, even if we look at it from a biomechanical perspective, I think the easiest way to start to grasp that it's a little bit more complicated than just like 
something's wrong in the body, therefore we have pain, is even looking at imaging studies where we're starting to understand how if you look at, and we'll, I can send you over, I have a list of some of the references that we use for this, but you look at things like knee radiographs where you, know, you show two people with um, knee x-rays and you would guess which person has pain. And it's almost a coin toss. And it's the same thing with like looking at postural assessments for people's shoulder blades. And you would, you know, if we looked at it, pain through this body as a machine perspective, we would say, hey, okay, the person with the faulty mechanics, probably the person with pain. But then again, we see that it's almost a coin toss, that it's just, it doesn't always correlate. It sometimes can be related, but it's not this one-to-one relationship that we always thought. So that's one end of it. The other thing that's tricky with this model is also when we try to apply these biomechanical interventions. So let's say we do assess someone's posture and we find that their shoulder blade is looking like it's, um, you know, has a little bit of a quote unquote abnormality with the way it's resting on the rib cage or it's moving in a faulty way, quote unquote. And we aim to correct those things. You know, people can and do tend to get better. However, Oftentimes the kinematics or the postural aspects don't necessarily change all that much. So that's another thing that I think really got me to pause and reflect um, with my confidence using some of these biomechanical um, approaches is just that. Uh, What are maybe some of the different reasons that they may be working beyond what we originally thought? So I know that was a lot, but hopefully we covered some bases there. Yeah, that was perfect. And I totally agree with you. And again, it's something that I've learned from you and and other people in the community that are speaking about this, but viewing the body as a machine and understanding the musculoskeletal system in that way, it does make some sense. Like it is valid to an extent of where essentially this big body of levers, but underneath the surface of all of that, there's a lot more going on, you know? And I want to ask you now, in terms of all this mechanic stuff, like that shoulder blade example is an awesome example and posture and leg length and all these little things that we tend to focus on when we're doing an assessment, even though we're seeing that it may not correlate to pain, do you believe there are situations where looking at those things and addressing them is valid and is going to, you know, contribute to a positive outcome? Yeah, for sure. And that's a good question. I think that's one of the things that I caution people at is like, I think I know when I first started learning about a lot of this stuff, I was really radicalized in terms of like, oh, like posture never matters or biomechanics never matter. Or like it's, you know, it's, it's all good. <laughs> and obviously there can be times where it's relevant, but I think the thing that changed is the narrative around it and the reasoning and like the rationale behind it. Um, you know, so I think it comes down to one foundational thing, which is like, how are we understanding stress? And in this sense, I'm meaning physical stress. So for example, like let's move to the knee. Um, if we fear, we used to think that increased, um, medial patellofemoral joint forces were something that would predispose someone to patellofemoral pain you know, this maltracking of the, of the kneecap. And so we might try to like work on that to, to resolve their knee pain. And the tricky thing is, is that like, we know that doing some of these interventions that might change the way they move might be really beneficial in the short term, but it's not because like stress is not inherently a good or bad thing. It just is. So there might be times where an individual just might be a bit sensitized to the way that they tend to be moving more frequently. And so if we can just get them moving a little bit differently in the short term, 
that might be a simple solution to help alleviate some of their symptoms. Same with posture. You know, we don't make a big stink about posture, but if someone's sensitized to like doing mouse work all day long with their right hand, that might be something that's worth modifying in the short term to see if you can get things to sensitize. But it's not about like, oh, because you're sitting in this posture, you're destined for pain. It's like, okay, you've been doing this for a while without any problems, seeming to be an issue now. We're going to look at a bunch of other things, but this is probably one little, you know, dial we can mess around with that might have some meaningful impact in the short term. And it's not necessarily a bad or dangerous thing, these different postures. Nice. Yeah. I, I like your outlook on that. Like you said, like there's always a gray area with this. And I think that a lot of us, especially young clinicians, young coaches, we want to be able to hold on to this idea. Like we want to learn something and know that it's 100% true. So when we transition from this body is a machine and only that model to learning that that's not totally valid, we get caught in this space of like, oh my God, does nothing matter? Like you said. <laughs> so I love the, the work that you guys are doing of, you know, being able to critically think and, and think through that is what it's all about. Um, but I want to go back to that example you were talking about with like the knee a little bit. Another yeah. thing that I know a lot of us <clears throat> who were involved in both physical therapy and also performance, we understand that the way that we move as human beings, like we aren't meant to move in a single plane in this perfect symmetrical way all the time, right? Like when you watch an athlete play soccer, I played field hockey in college. We would look at the game photos and be like, Whoa, look at your knee, look at your ankle, (laughs) look at your back. Like, so as humans, we're meant to move in these ways that may not be perfectly aligned or tracked. So do you feel like there's kind of this difficulty when it comes to exercise prescription of like, how much should we be focusing on perfect posture, perfect alignment, perfect form versus understanding that the human body is going to kind of do what it needs to do to ultimately (laughs) get the job done, you know? Yeah, this is a really good question because again, like all these questions you're asking are amazing because they could each be a podcast within themselves Um, because there's just so much to unpack. (laughs) I think, you know, the tricky thing, right, is like, isn't that kind of ironic, right? How it's like, you find yourself being super athletic in these crazy positions, yet we're like growing up being like, don't let your knees pass over your toes when you squat. Like I believed that literally until maybe my last year of PT school when my world got rocked and I realized that that wasn't inherently a bad thing. Um, So it's kind of funny. Right. And I think you said it like variability is so important. Um, And that being said, when it comes to training and how important is it to have these like rigid, perfect form, that's a really good discussion and a really interesting discussion because my stance has definitely shifted over the years um, where it's the thing is, is like, there's a couple of considerations. One is like when it comes to pain, like pain versus performance, so to speak, because if I'm working with someone like from a pain rehab perspective, I'm way less strict about like form needing to be perfect X, Y, or Z, which I think is like, historically, that's when people care the most. It's like, no, if you don't move this way, you're going to get hurt. When in reality, it probably backfires because realistically, we need more thoughtless kind of flowing, freeing types of movements with these things. But when it comes to performance, we want to 
you know, move weight optimally so that we can get the desired stimulus that we're looking to get to be able to offer the ability to, to move in a variety of different ways. And so I think it's, it's finding that middle ground. And, and even there, I mean, even when I'm working with folks who are in more in the pain rehab sides of things, it's not like I'm like, oh, whatever, like do like lift however you lift. Like we're still going to work on kind of a quote unquote optimal form, but there might be much more wiggle room to which I'm like, Hey, like, let's find a way that it's comfortable for you. Or let's find a way that there's you know a tolerable amount of pain when you're doing something. And so we might mess around with some different options there. Um, and then again, on that performance side, we might be dialed into a little bit of a, of a stricter type of movement. And, it, and again, it also depends when it's like, um, you know, are we trying to, cause this is yeah, there's, so, there's so many things that you change your mind on as you, as you go along, but like the whole functional versus isolated training and, and, and the role of those types of things where there's so much value in isolated strength training, because you can really ensure you're getting that desired stimulus to those muscles to allow you to go do different things and, and different varieties of movement. So I don't know if I answered your question there. These are just, so, these are such good questions. They're just so deep. So it's hard to answer yeah, like, succinctly. I definitely have a habit of asking these big questions and sometimes it's a great thing. I know it's like a good, like attribute that I have, but at the same time, um, I need to like bring it back sometimes. So no, I, no, no, it's good. It's good. I it's appreciate just you. We can, we can, you know, navigate within based on, based yeah, on the context. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now I want to just ask one more point about something you mentioned of one thing that you're working on with somebody who's in pain is finding a tolerable, like finding tolerable within the movement, within the exercise. I think one thing that naturally as physical therapists, patients are coming to us oftentimes because they're in pain and therefore we really focus on avoiding it at all costs. So I know, you know, in the clinic, I just finished up a clinical rotation and if a patient starts an exercise and they ask them, does this hurt? And they say, yeah, yeah, it, it does kind of hurt my shoulder. The answer becomes, okay, we're not going to do that. Let's do something else. So can you kind of explain your thoughts on like, should we be exposing patients to these positions, to these exercises that are painful in order to work on that kind of desensitization? Or do we want to like avoid it altogether and constantly be working around pain? <laughs> yeah. Oh um, man, these, these are all such good questions, um, but uh, depth, there's a lot of depth and nuance to them. So I'll, I'll do the best I can. It, it, the tough thing is, is that obviously, as you know, it's going to wildly depend on the context of the person in front of you, but generally speaking, you know, we, we, we generally go off of the kind of pain, you know, the, the traffic light analogy, so to speak, or, you know, mild, especially in pain rehab, mild amounts of pain are totally fine and safe to be working through. I generally, you, I don't, I generally try not to use like, if it's a three out of 10, that's fine. Like if they're asking for specific numbers, but I'll also be like tolerable. I'll try to use like tolerable. Like if let's, let's work through something that's tolerable for you. Um, and if it's anything more than you're comfortable with, we don't have to do it. Um, and the thing that is tricky is it's going to depend on the type of person. Am I working with someone that's like super duper fear avoidant and like totally scared to even like work towards those ranges? Or am I working with someone that's like just goes full send all the time and they're just like constantly bursting through pain barriers where they might be someone where I'm like, actually, I don't want to do any motions right now that are provoking symptoms because I don't trust that we can dial it in enough 
to let things totally calm down. So that's another factor that I have to work through when I'm considering, am I going to be pushing through pain or not? It's also how long have they been dealing with it? Is it something they've been dealing for a long, long, long time where it's like, okay, I really want to establish movements that don't trigger any of your symptoms. Whereas if it's more of like a subacute thing and things are getting better, it's like, let's, we can definitely work through mild symptoms. That's totally fine. Um, so, so those are some of the different factors that will inform my clinical decision-making on when and how to do it. Um, but generally speaking, we are very upfront that this is a normal part of the rehab process. We're monitoring how it responds over the course of that next day or so. Um, and I'll make sure to set those expectations during the initial visit. So we're on the same page with that being, you know, not necessarily a bad thing, but actually can be a helpful thing in the rehab process. Yeah. So it definitely comes down to like understanding the context that the patient in front of you is coming from. Um, and I know some of that ties into the biopsychosocial model of pain, which again is kind of its own framework. And sometimes people get really caught up in that and again, ignore like the mechanical stuff. But I know that the biopsychosocial model plays a really big part and is very valid in a lot of ways with how people experience pain. Can you just give like a brief overview as to what that model describes and how that might influence you experiencing pain different than me, even if we have the same diagnosis, so to speak? Yeah, for sure. So this is a really good question. And I think this is a tricky thing because we've definitely tried to move away from like, um, the biopsychosocial model, we tend to think it's, it's more of just a big picture framework and not necessarily a pain model per se. Um, if that makes sense, cause that's kind of an important delineation. The important thing to understand is that all of these things we're talking about can be viewed through this lens of kind of a biopsychosocial framework. We're simply just saying we appreciate all of the different factors that might be, um, need to be considered when we're working with an individual or thinking about why they might be experiencing pain. And so that might look at all of the biological and biomechanical factors that might look at all of the psychological um, and sociological factors. And the thing is, is that the, one of the issues with this model is that it's very easy to become disjointed where it's like, no, they have this these psychological issues and that's what we need to tackle or they have just these biomechanical issues and that's what we need to tackle. The reality is, is they are always interacting with each other and manipulating each other and conditioning each other. So you can't like, they always all are present and something that we need to be considering. And, you know, pain is a really, really, really weird thing. Um, and this, getting to answering your question, just laying some background context. One big debate in the field for a long time has been, is pain a sensation or a perception? Um, and so if we go back to kind of this like biomechanical linear model of pain, we always thought of it as a sensation. It's this, this input we get from our pain signals, the brain registers it as pain. And then in the 2000s, there was this big revolution and this had been brewing for decades but really starting to look at pain as more of a perception or more of this top-down model of pain. So you think of things like phantom limb pain and you're like, this person literally doesn't have a limb yet they're experiencing pain. How the hell do we explain that? And when there was a lot of more research going into that, they started to see how potentially this, it could be more of this cognitive perceptive experience that we're able to experience this feeling of pain um, despite you know, that sensory input coming up. 
And that's something that's important to understand because my current stance on it is I, I believe it's both like both aspects are so important to it. And we know now we now know that, you know, these pain signals that we once thought there were, we call them nociceptors. And these are more of what we call as danger, danger or damage signals where real or act or potential doesn't mean that there is anything potentially going on, but we might be getting some of that input, but our, how we are encultured, how we're socialized, our thoughts, our beliefs, all of those things are going to influence the way we perceive a, a thing, right? And, and context always changes the way you might get a physical stimulus. You know, I think Hannah moves, shout out to Nick Hannah. This is kind of a crude example, but it's so funny because I think it's a great example of like, think about a butt smack, you know, think about someone smacking the butt in a context of punishment versus the context of like sports versus the context of uh, playtime with your partner. These are all going to radically change the way that you experience the same exact input. And I think that's a great example of how pain is so damn complex because the way that you're encultured and socialized and your worldview is going to change the way that you experience it and interplay with all these different dimensions. And that's what makes pain rehab so damn complicated, but so damn fun and flexible because there's so much to think about and so much to appraise. <laughs> and like, it just, it's, it's endless, it's endless, but I, I, I don't know if that helps yeah. answer that question. 100%. That analogy is beautif- <laughs> beautifully accurate. I really enjoy that. I'm definitely going to use that in the future. Who do I give the credit to for that? Nick Hanna. Right. And, and the other one too, and Joe Rinaldi wrote a blog about this back when he was pumping out the PT content, but same thing with like, think about kids when they fall and they fall, they get a boo-boo. And the first thing they do is they look up to parents. If parents are freaking out, kids going to be like, ah, like lose it. Um, or they might just get, if the parents are like, we're good, we're good. They get up and they move along with their life. And interestingly enough, there's studies like longitudinal studies that look at people that play contact sports versus versus not. And the people who don't play contact sports are more likely to experiencing persisting pain symptoms at some time in their life. And the likely ex- explanation there is their relationship with more of this, these physical stimuli are going to be perceived. It's like, it's more dangerous or it's more threatening. Um, and so that might influence their physiology and the way they end up experiencing it versus someone that's just like, Oh, whatever. Like it's, it's fine. I'll, you know, bump and bruise. I'll move along. Yeah. Wow. Zach, this is also interesting. And I agree with you. I think it makes our field so exciting, but also sometimes a little overwhelming. Um, But this is awesome. Now, one thing I want to ask you is you kept mentioning this idea of pain is something that we perceive, you know, there's this input, not only from a mechanical sensory standpoint, but this top-down approach where our perception has a big influence. And When I hear that, it makes me think that, okay, if our perception influences our pain, then that's something that we can potentially change or influence or alter. And I think that there, this can be for good and for bad. So I want to dive into a little bit, those of us who are working with a patient, a client, the words that we use can tremendously influence how they perceive not just their pain, but their movement, their capability, everything. Can you dive into a little bit about your experience and why the words that we use can influence these things so tremendously? 
Yeah. I mean, this is like, again, such an important question. And so, and there's like so many ways to go with it. Right. Because I think if we start from, if we start from like the historical perspective of kind of the, the problems of more of the biomechanical narratives, you know, that's as simple as, you know, you were told by your doctor never to let your knees go over your toes or don't squat because it's bad for your back. The problem is, is like that saying in, in and of itself doesn't necessarily create pain per se, but it might create thoughts, feelings, and thus behaviors and actions that might predispose someone to being a little bit more susceptible or fragile in a sense where it's like they're, they're just deconditioned, you know, they are, they're not exerting themselves in a way that's exposing them to different variety. And they are really rigid. They do like one same exact movement pattern to pick things up day in and day out, instead of kind of using a variety of different motions. And so that's one way I think, like when we think about the problematic narratives, you're like, that's one thing. Another thing is that it can create a lot of perseveration and attentional focus when you go to a well-intended healthcare provider and they're like, yeah, what's going on with my neck? And they're like, oh man, where do we start? You know, your posture is terrible. Like, so we have to fix that forward head posture. There's this knot in your muscle that I can't get out. So we're going to need to do that. And so then the person leaves and they're like, shit, like my posture, is my posture really that bad? And then they're, they're constantly thinking about it and they're constantly attending to it. And like, that's not super helpful. Um, And what we know now, when we look at big picture pain rehab, you know, there's an important concept where we talk about, you know, to put it simply, it's like our, our lived experience, generally speaking, we are either kind of tuned and attending to the world and all of those external stimuli, or we're kind of tuned into our body and our bodily stimuli. And so we would call that exteroception and interoception, like things outside of our body, things inside outside of our body versus inside of our body. And what we tend to see is like, we want to be engaged with our world. We want to be focusing like, like when we're in flow state, when we're having this conversation right now, I'm not thinking about my body. The problem with a lot of these biomechanical narratives is that it creates a lot of attention to more of these internal sensations where we're focusing in on that. And that might not play out in the best way. It can kind of create this feedback loop where now we keep continue to think about it, think about it we're more likely to perceive or experience maybe some of these different feelings of pain. And it's not that simple and it doesn't always work out like that, but that's one of the other consequences of some of these biomechanical types of narratives. Um, But then to move further and critique maybe some of the well-intended advancements where we're talking about pain as a perception and needing to target the way we think and feel about pain to change pain is an uh, incredible advancement. However, one of the things we need to be careful of is then not giving this narrative of like, you just need to think differently and then you won't be experiencing pain or, oh, you're saying pain is in my head um, because that's sort of the shift that we went to. And that's not radically different than pinning it to a biomechanical narrative. I mean, in a way it's better because it's not as like tied to like, there's something wrong with this structure or this and that, but in a way it's the same because we're saying it's a problem with your brain and now they're attending to that and they're worried about that. And so just something to be mindful of when we're talking about these narratives. And I think the way that I discuss it now with patients is I just say, look, like we understand now, like there's so many things that can influence pain. 
And ultimately, like one of the biggest things is like, we want to get you feeling confident about your ability to do different things. And it's like trying to quell any anxiety related to movement, quell any fears that you have related to movement, because these can all play into kind of your overall physiology and may have a negative impact on the overall experience. And it's not that if we address these, you simply get out of pain, but when we're working with persisting pain rehab, we're looking at all the carbs on the table and seeing where we can collectively move things in the right direction. And so thoughts, feelings, beliefs, these are all part of the stew that go into pain rehab. And if we can pull those levers in a meaningful way, it's transformed my approach. Um, But it's just being careful in the way, careful and thoughtful in the way that I communicate um, in an empowering way to patients. Yeah, definitely. And I can imagine that's something that you're continuing to improve over time. You know, you're always learning more about what to say and how to say it best. And I'm sure you catch yourself in certain moments where maybe a patient doesn't receive it well. So that's something that I have to remind myself of often is on this rotation I just had, like, I tried to work really hard to communicate well. And I think in a lot of situations I did, but one situation that I ran into frequently, and I'd like to ask your thoughts on this is many patients who come to us, like you said, have already seen their doctor. They may have had imaging done and they've already been told by their orthopedic physician, you know, who is the specialist, who is the top dog, pulls up their x-ray on the screen, shows them their knee, points out, points to the joint and says, look at this bone on bone. I don't want you to do any squatting anymore. Don't walk more than a mile. You're going to need, you're going to need your knee replaced and, you know, try PT, maybe it'll help. And you like, you laugh, but it's, that's what patients are being told. And I want to ask you as a physical therapist, we have to respect the doctors, you know, like they're writing the prescription. They are a trained professional, but I get really upset when I hear a patient come into me, who's terrified who doesn't even want to do like a TRX chair squat because of this narrative. So my question for you is how do you navigate that conversation? We obviously, we want to build trust. We don't want to say your doctor's an idiot, but we want to take their perception, take that, that language and flip it around. How do you go about navigating that situation with your patients? Great question. And yeah, the, the laugh is more of a like maniacal, what a sick, twisted world we live in (laughs) and bane of my existence. I mean, that's part of what caused me to start level up where we're doing free mentorship for people because I was running into that problem and still do, you know, every single week. Um, and it's super frustrating. So I think the first thing is like, there's kind of a filtering process in my mind where, you know, when I was first learning about this stuff, I was gung ho, like going hard, challenging patients just right off the bat, where now I really try to um, listen and and understand where they're at with things. Like, first off, you know, how, how strongly do they believe this belief? Like, are they coming in where this is like a 10 out of 10? Like, oh my God, I can't do this. Otherwise I'm going to die. Or it's like, eh, yeah, my doctor told me this, but uh, you know, you're kind of sensing that they sense that it might be a little bit of some BS where, you know, that's one, if they're already voicing some skepticism or ambivalence, you can kind of enter in there. The other filter that I go through is like, how high or low is this person on their trust tree? So is this a physician that they've been working with for decades that they trust more than anyone? Or is this like, uh, yeah, it's my first time going to this ortho, didn't have a great experience, but this is what they told me. 
Cause that's also going to inform my approach. Cause I also don't want to step on toes, but I'm also going to advocate for my patients. So if they've been told a really shitty narrative, part of my French, you know, we're going to have a conversation about it if it's really hindering them from engaging in physical activities specifically. So if it's not someone that they super duper trust, or they're a little bit skeptical, that's an easy thing where it's like, Hey, would it be cool if I kind of shared some of my perspective about what's going on? Cause I used to believe some of those very same things, but I've actually um, shifted my stance on, on this based on a lot of the reading and research that has been coming out over the last few years. And if someone is really high up on the trust tree and really scared, um, that's going to be quite, that's going to be a bit more of a challenge because you're going to, you know, you're, you're probably going to need to do a little bit more to kind of like motivational interviewing and Socratic questioning to, to really kind of explore their beliefs to like, you basically need to get to a point where you're asking them good questions about their beliefs until a point where they do express some ambivalence where it's like, you know, well, my doctor said this and it's like, well, how do you feel about that? And they're like, well, it sucks. And da, 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 da. And it's like, well, do you think that, you know, like, do you really think that this is going to damage your knee if you have to do this every now and again? And I don't know, that's just an example. Like you might go down that route, but the idea would be to get to a point where you can ask permission to share your perspective. And that's where you can go off, you know, on in some of the different things about, you know, what the radiograph studies show us about these things and how we know movement is actually a helpful thing. And how, like, what do you think you're going to do the rest of your life? Sit in a chair and never move again? Like, it's it's well-intended, but it's oftentimes, you know, not the best information. And, you know, we need to try and begin getting people moving. And it's tough, but coming from a place of empathy, coming from a place of understanding, trying to just plant seeds. And oftentimes, I think the biggest thing is trying to... Um, use movement as much as I can to kind of like implicitly get them to buy into something where it's like, they might be like, well, I can't do X, Y, or Z. And maybe you do it in a different context. And you're like, look, you just did it and you did it and you live to tell about it. So like, let's go, (laughs) you know? So that's definitely been a big shift in my practice too, is trying to use more movement to kind of implicitly teach them rather than just verbal, you know, persuasion of being like, Hey, look, this is safe to do or X, Y, or Z. Yeah, definitely. Now I have to laugh because I'm jotting down notes as we go here to keep my brain on track and where I want to take this. And I just wrote down to begin that conversation about how we can use exercise to empower patients. So I love that that's, you know, where your mind was going as well. And especially because you mentioned, you know, patients need to be ready to have those conversations. They like not every patient wants to be given a research study. And as physical therapists, Patient education is like literally our wheelhouse in school. We get graded on how well we can explain these biomechanical things. So by all means, like we want to educate, but you need to understand like where the patient sitting in front of you is at with not only their level of understanding, but yeah, like their willingness to hear it. And it's something that I learned on this, these last 10 weeks of mine, where in the beginning, my first couple of weeks, a classic, you know, first orthopedic patient experience. I'm like trying to throw as much information at the patient as I can about what's going on and thinking that they want it. And sometimes like it's the third or fourth or fifth visit that the patient will ask you directly, like, okay, what are you feeling in there? Or, you know, like, what do you think about this? Or like, 
I, I like to explain our job as physical therapists, not so much as like, we are healing our patients, like patients all the time are like, Oh my God, you fixed me. And I love spinning that around and saying like, no, I'm simply a facilitator to help you fix you, you know? And like, I think that's huge. And I'm, I'm glad that I've had people like you to follow that. I realized that already. Um, but that being said, when a patient isn't quite ready to talk about these things, because words are scary, words are overwhelming. We can use exercise in a skilled way to show them how resilient their body is and what they're capable of. So maybe we can talk about an example. If we take that knee patient we spoke about earlier, who was told by the doctor not to squat, we know as physical therapists that that's just straight up not true. So instead of telling them that's BS, how would you go about not tricking them, but like, you know, introducing them to these movements that then leaves them saying, whoa, I did it. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a, a really good question. I feel like I'm fighting off a sneeze here, but I think I'm going to be good. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, if let, like, let's say they weren't comfortable with squatting, you know, I think one thing I would really want to do is I would want to try, I would want to try to find a way to get some knee range of motion going. So that might be something as simple as a heel slide. If I can get them kneeling, you know, on a soft pad and doing some rock backs, you know, that's like a squatting motion, but it's not weight bearing. So like just even doing simple movements like that are a really simple way. And also if they're like so caught up that squatting is just like totally off limits, never said anything about hinging or deadlifting. So I would probably go that route. And I would just focus on a lot of posterior chain deadlifting type of stuff that's going to feel good for them and build up strength. And then in the meantime, I would probably start with just a simple quad isometric, like a, a mid range kick out, you know, an isometric hold where we can start to get some quad isolation work and start to strengthen around the joint and, you know, be engaging with them and and asking like, how is this feeling? And the odds are you're picking these different movements. Like I kind of have my starter pack of movements that I know for the volatile or sensitized joint, these are probably going to feel pretty good and pretty tolerable. And if you start with those, that can be really powerful because that's your opportunity to like, see, look, like we're kind of loading up and around the joint and it feels good. Like we actually understand these can sometimes have an analgesic effect, which is really cool. Um, But let's start here and let's build this up for a few weeks. And then, you know, we'll continue to have this conversation about, about squatting. Um, but I, I wouldn't force it per se at the very beginning, especially if they're like giving a lot of kickback to it and are really like caught up on it. Like there's so many other things that you can do. Yeah, definitely. A podcast that I did, um, a few weeks back with a physical therapist, Dustin Jones, who works in the geriatric space. And our conversation was more so not about pain, but about getting older adults, moving, attaining buy-in, overcoming those fears. And one of the strategies that they really harp on is this intentional underdosing. So saying and recognizing like older adults or people in pain who have been in pain for a long time, they're not used to like really stressing their body yet. They don't, we know that the joint is sensitive, so we don't want to push it too much, but let's just like gently guide them into movement. Even though we know that like, yeah, the, the quad kickouts or the kneeling, like, is that working on strengthening? Not necessarily, but there's so much power in starting with simple movement. And then, 
you can eventually progress and work up to, you know, the things that are really going to create that adaptation. But yeah, I think that's, that's a really powerful skill. And you have to have this humbleness to you of like me, especially I come from a strength and conditioning background. So like, I have to catch myself where I have a patient in front of me and I'm like, let's fucking go. Like, let's go all out. like that's, that's who I am at my core, but <laughs> I, but I'm learning. And I've learned again over the, over my last clinical that like, put your ego aside for a second and on visit six or seven, then maybe you can bring that side out. But hundred percent. That is one of the most valuable lessons, especially if you're coming from that sort of strength bias where you're just like, let's load up. Like, let's get everyone loaded up. It's a beautiful thing, but man, the familiarization phase where you're just, you're building implicit confidence, right? You're building trust in their body again to tolerate some of these movements. And even though you might not be building up like the physiological changes that you're looking for, you are building up some sort of base tolerance and exposure to movements. So it's not nothing. It's just meeting them where they're at, but that's so powerful. Um, and it builds strong relationship because they're like, okay, cool. Like I'm starting to trust my body again. I'm feeling good. And then you go from there. Yeah, definitely. Now, one more point I want to dive into a little bit here is we, we spoke a lot about, you know, movement mechanics and understanding that focusing on form to some extent, finding that optimal range, let's say of what a movement should look like is important. But I think that many people, especially with social media, we get very critical or sometimes even nervous when a movement doesn't look perfect. You yeah. know, we'll take like a deadlift or a hinge, for example, if there's a little bit of rounding of the back or if there's a little bit of hip shifting. And we we love to be analytical as coaches. So we focus on those things. But do you think that sometimes placing too much emphasis on these mechanical things can almost have like a negative impact in the way that people view movement and exercise. Absolutely. And it can also have a negative impact from a motor learning perspective. I mean, when I came out of school and I was teaching someone how to deadlift, I would be giving them like the history of deadlifts and every cue under the freaking sun where now I like literally don't say anything, <laughs> you know what I mean? So even just from like an internal external cueing type of situation from a motor learning perspective, we understand that we want to give them time and space to kind of work through things with the right setup and the, and the right environmental cues. We can probably get them to move the way we want them to move without cueing them to death. So that's just, I mean, and there's a time and place for internal cueing, but as a rule of thumb, like that's generally the bias in terms of like improved motor learning of, of learning how to do a task well. Um, but yeah, and you can also have those negative influences where then people get so caught up on it where they're like, oh my God, my back wasn't perfectly quote unquote straight during this movement. I need to shut it down or I need to go back where in reality, again, we know there's some wiggle room there and it doesn't like, you look at the research on, on lumbar flexion during lifts. And even when we have a perfectly appearing neutral spine, we understand that there's still some lumbar flexion that's happening. So it's like, you know, it's, it's something that we need to consider, but we get so caught up on it and we like create these. Uh, I think it, the other thing it ends up doing is creating a lot of these arbitrary boundaries to movement where it's like, unless it's perfect, you shouldn't be doing that yet. And it's like, all right, let's, let's, let's find a middle ground here. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with you. And I'm glad you brought that up. Cause one of the things that I am 
truly, truly passionate about, like at my core is like the novice fitness enthusiast, somebody who is just getting into the gym, who becomes interested in lifting weights for the first time. And I think one of the most common barriers to entry or barriers to really getting into these things that are so good for you is this fear of like, I don't know how to do it or feeling embarrassed when they are squatting in the gym or bench pressing and they like think that they look silly. And I really just want to like share this narrative of like, first of all, don't be afraid because if you're performing it and if you have a little bit of guidance, like it's probably okay. And like, it doesn't need to be perfect. And you mentioned motor learning, our body, our brain knows how to move. And some of us move better than others. Some of us are more athletic than others, but like if you work at something long enough and hard enough and you have the right tools, you'll probably get better at it. You know, have you seen um, clients or patients where the first time you have them perform a basic strength exercise, it's really difficult. And then within a certain amount of time, they kind of figure it out. Yep. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So definitely just want to share that of like, if you're somebody listening who is nervous to work out because you're nervous about hurting yourself or, you know, doing things wrong. Like it is a valid fear to have, but understand that you don't need to look like, you know, the dude on Instagram who's been lifting for like 20 years and looks quote unquote perfect. That's, that's totally true. And I think the one thing is it's, it's right. It's so much more about like, what are you prepared for? So if you haven't done anything in the gym for five years, just be reasonable with how much you're ramping up, you know, same thing for like running. If you haven't run in five years and then you're like, I'm going to go do a 5k, like might not be the best idea, but go out for a 10 minute run. You'll be totally fine. You know, or if you haven't been to the gym in a while, like, and you're just starting with body weight stuff, you're going to be fine. You know, it's uh, so I think that's the one thing it's, it's more of like, are you like, what's your conditioning you know, and can you tolerate some of these things? And, and oftentimes when people are just starting out, the loads being used aren't enough to actually hurt someone <laughs> in a serious way. Yeah, definitely. So. Like getting out and moving your body in any capacity is probably the benefits of that are going to outweigh any of these little risks of like, you might hurt yourself or be doing it wrong. Or well, I mean, yourself, that's, like. you know, I know Dustin and and kind of the ice physio crew are, are kind of famous for that sort of like, you know, avoiding that one rep max living where that's basic, right. It's like, if you're so deconditioned that like going to lift the laundry basket is like the hardest task that you do over the day, then like your body's probably not like, that's, that's almost riskier than going to the gym and do it. You know what I mean? That, that is riskier than going to the gym and starting to get into weight training. Like you said, the, the, the risks or the benefits totally outweigh the risks. Yeah. 100%. Um, now one more question here about the more of the gym situation, you know, many physically active people, I'm sure you've experienced this, this yourself. I definitely have like, even those of us who have knowledge, who have experience, we're going to feel aches and pains from time to time in the gym. You know, sometimes I get under the barbell and like my right SI region is bothering me. And I used to get so hyper-focused on it and then it would hurt more. And now I'm kind of like, all right, you know what, if you're pushing yourself and you're moving your body a lot, like you're going to feel something. So I, I feel like it's hard though, when you are somebody who experiences these things to decide like, how do you know if you should stop or if you should change things around versus how do you know if you should kind of just like push through the, this discomfort? Do you have any advice for somebody navigating that? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, totally normal, totally normal part of the process. I think where it starts to raise some flags for me is like how consistent or recurring is it, right? Like, is this just like, I slept like garbage last week and I'm just kind of fatigued and I'm like, my back's a little bit sore. You know, I had a hard training day yesterday. Like that's totally normal. Life goes on. Maybe you modify and use like, you know, a little bit less intensity on that day. But if you're like, you know, every Friday squat day and over the course of a month, every single Friday, you keep getting more increase in like anterior hip pain, that might be a cause to be like, Hey, I need to, I should modify something, you know, I shouldn't take away squats, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll limit the range of motion a little bit, or maybe I'll cut down the intensity a little bit. So it's, it's, I think for me, the simple rule of thumb is just how consistent and frequently are you experiencing that? If it's kind of like you're fluky, you know, once a month, twice a month, you're kind of feeling different aches and pains, like totally normal, nothing to be concerned about. And even when you are starting to get some of those like emergence of more consistent, you know, jointy type of pain, also nothing to be concerned about, just something where I'd say, hey, let's, I think we should, there's probably a way that we can keep you training hard, but modify. Um, And that's, you know, it might not even be the, it might be the intensity. Maybe someone's just redlining their training every single day, every single week, where it's like, we just literally need to learn how to have, you know, some easier training days. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. So yeah, somebody who's going through that, I mean, find somebody who can help you with that either like virtually there's so many coaches or physical therapists, but if you're really passionate about movement and you go to a PT and they tell you to stop before they really take a look, maybe maybe find another PT. (laughs) Um, But Zach, wow, this conversation has been so freaking awesome. Um, I want to just finish with one final question that all of my guests on the podcast here receive. This podcast, the Goal Set Mindset podcast, is centered around setting goals and achieving them with the principles of passion, perseverance, and performance. So tell me, what is a personal goal that you have right now, and how are you working towards it? Yes. <laughs> so um, we've got a couple of things going on right now, um, but I would say I think the biggest thing for us, the biggest challenge that we're tackling right now is turning Level Up, now Kalu into a sustainable business that can still have the impact and mission that we're on. Um, that's a really big challenge, um, doing, doing what we're doing and being in the mentoring and kind of continuing education space can be a tricky line um, to toe, um, wanting to do the right thing and not be predatory. So that's, that's I think, for us is where we're at, is just working towards that. And, and the way we're working towards it is just continuing to take back more time from our uh, like day-to-day jobs um, and really focus in on this surrounded with a great team that's helping inform it and uh, just taking the chance because life's too short. And if it doesn't end up working out, life will go on. But I think that's where we're at now is just we're, we're about ready to be giving it our hundred percent attention and focus and see what we can do with it. Yeah, Zach, that's awesome. And I definitely understand, you know, the concerns of where you're coming from. You don't want to ask for too much, but what you guys are doing is so valuable. And I am really good at um, seeing authenticity when it's in front of me and you and your whole crew is super authentic in what you do. So I'm excited to continue to see your growth, um, continue to support you guys over at Calu. And I would love if you could tell our listeners where they can find you, connect with you and learn from you guys. Yeah, no, thank you, Julie. I appreciate it. Um, 
So um, simple way is just at our Instagram handle. So that's um, at the level up initiative. Um, so that's really easy. And if you're on Facebook, you can literally just do, um, if you do, if you search the Kalu community, um, C-A-L-U community, that's our free Facebook group. It's a good place to kind of connect, get some free resources, journal clubs, meet some other cool people um, and get some baseline exposure to what we're doing. Yeah, definitely. And Zach, I know you've been involved in some podcasts. Do you have any podcasts right now that you're currently doing? Um, in terms of like my my own or, or ones yeah. that I recommend? Uh, I mean, either way, but like in terms <laughs> of the any uh, podcasts that you host or speak yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. So we have uh, the level up podcast. That's mine that I host. And as part of our Kalu blowing up the Kalu media sides of things, we have a new one called the rethinking rehab podcast. That's hosted by my freaking homegirl Shelby. She's awesome. Um, and then we have the clinical athlete podcasts, which is our partner company for Kalu that's hosted by Quinn Hennock. Um, and then we have our, our newest one dropping today, the playground that's, for powerlifting folk, um, John Flagg and, and Jared Maynard, who are a big part of the Kalu team. That's our collective voice. So that's all the podcasts that we kind of run together, but any of them will give you a good vibe of what we're about with Kalu and, and what we're after. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Zach. I'll definitely make sure to put all the links in the description of this episode so people can find them. And thank you again so much for your time. I know you're a busy guy and this episode was one of my favorites so far. So thanks a bunch. Yeah, great questions. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Goal Set Mindset Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation on pain, human movement, and feel empowered by the fact that these things are very complex and nobody truly knows all of the answers. I greatly encourage you, if you are a physical therapist or student, to join the Cali Group. It has been tremendous in my personal growth. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate you sharing it with a friend and giving me a review on your platform of choice. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, we will be back next week with another episode.